Amen. What you can in your Bibles, please, to a a very obscure um, book. Some may have not even ever read this. Some of you may not have even um, paged to this. It's the third last book of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament, called Haggai. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophet there. So I want you to flip all the way back to Matthew, and then just three chapters um, before Matthew, you'll get to Haggai, who is a prophet who is prophesying round about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They have just come into um, an opportunity to rebuild the temple, as it were, the people of Israel, which have been living in isolation in, um, under the um, influence of Babylon. The people of Israel who've been living in uh, captivity and bondage have now come back into their promise, and they're rebuilding the temple, and uh, the prophet Haggai is raised up into this context. It's politically charged. Uh, some of these people have been living with a great disappointment because as they're rebuilding this temple, they remembered Solomon's temple, the former temple, and all of its glory. If you flip back a few chapters before, you'll remember that Solomon's temple carried this incredible sense of awe and wonder, so much so that people from all over the world would travel to come and look at the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of this temple that was built. And here they are after the temple had been destroyed and they're rebuilding this temple. It is interesting to remember that by this point, the people of Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant. So there's no sense of the presence of God, but they're working real hard to build. And some of the, the, the older folk, some of the more mature folk were longing and remembering and hankering after a day that was yesterday saying, wasn't those days really good? Um, I am turning 45 this month. Sweet Jesus, help. I know, I look good, don't I? Black don't crack is all I'm saying. Um, and, and I, I am longing, old enough to remember some glory days of church and some glory days of the power of God. I grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s and saw God do some amazing things. And these guys are a bit like that, thinking, God, won't you do it again? And they're building in the middle of a difficult context and it just looks a bit naff. Do you guys have that saying here? It just looks a bit like that. And it's into this context that Haggai prophesies, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shekel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations will come in, and I 
will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Touch your neighbor and say, it's going to get better. Okay, but you've got to say it like you mean it. It's going to get a whole lot better. I, I love this particular text, and we're, we're talking a little bit about revival. Now, I grew up in what is called a Pentecostal background, so we would uh, wait and carry for the Holy Spirit. There was an anticipation that when you came to meet uh, at church that Jesus would show up. Um, I kind of like that anticipation and think it's a biblical expectation. And grew up in the context of seeing the presence and the power of God move in some incredible and some beautiful ways. And um, I love this particular text because really this is a text about the church today. Um, Haggai has some words to speak to us today. And as we begin to talk a little bit about revival and what that means and the impact that it should have, I want to remind you that God's dealing with humanity has meant that throughout history, there have been moments where the sovereign Lord God Almighty has broken in unto the affairs of man, mostly and more often than not in obscure places, in places that no one expected with people that no one expected and he's broken into those spaces and he's shifted the trajectory of history. He's shifted the trajectory of economics. He's shifted the trajectory of whole communities in a moment as he stepped in to the discourse of time, as he stepped in to the space of history and geography and shifted things so that his name gets so big, so magnificent, that hundreds and thousands of people turn to him. That's what revival really is, when God breaks in and he renews his church, and that renewal, as Mark says, the great author of the reappearing church says, goes viral. I am longing for a day again where God will break in to the world, where God will break in, and I believe we are living in such a day. Just recently with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at a university campus in Asbury, the presence of God breaking in so much so that hundreds of people began to line up, that they had to call the police in to shut down the main road because of the attraction to the presence of and the power of God. And Haggai is a prophet who is speaking to the church today because I feel like we're in this space. Uh, you'll see throughout Israel's history that there are moments where God turns a whole nation in one moment and they respond to God and things are shifted. And it, it, it is also true in history that the people of God are easily distracted. It is also true in history that the people of God see him in his beauty but become overwhelmed and distracted by everything else that's around them. And Haggai is prophesying, in fact, in chapter 1, he says to the people in this country, he says, hey, you people, you're building your own house, but you've forgotten the house of the Lord. 
You, you become so used to making sure that your barns are full. You become so used to making sure that you are taken care of that you have forgotten about a preoccupation with the house of the Lord because really, for the people of Israel, the house of the Lord, the temple, is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's a place where there's unbroken connection between God and his people. And I, I love this because I kind of feel like we are living in a moment in history where the pull of the world is so definitive and so demanding to move our face away from the house of God. We have all manner of deconstruction and theologies that have tried to steal away from the fundamental truth that Hebrews tells us that the church of God is meant to be a house. In fact, Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews quotes from Haggai saying, there is coming a shaking again. Oh, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the shaking again. Because for the unbeliever, for those who have not experienced the love of Jesus, it might seem terrifying. But for those who are part of the covenant purposes of God, it's exhilarating because we know he's going to shift something. He's going to change something. And I believe that Haggai is speaking to us right now saying it is easy to become distracted with building your own thing and miss the point of building the very space and place that will reveal the purposes of God. A little bit later in chapter 2, Haggai says, that this temple, this people, this community will become like a signet ring in the hand of God and it will display the multifaceted wisdom of God. It sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3 that the multifaceted, many-colored wisdom of God will be on display in the church. My eternal hope is not for a church in defeat. My eternal hope is not for a temple, a community, a house of brokenness, but my eternal hope is that your latter glory will be better than the former. It's got to get better. And that there will be such a beautiful display of God's kingdom purposes through communities all across Boston that love him and that are committed to him and that have given their all to him, that it will be stunning, it will be striking, it will be beautiful, it will be multicolored, it will reveal the wisdom of God. If you agree, please say, hallelujah, flipping Hallelujah. And that's what Haggai is prophesying into. Your latter will be greater than your former. We just celebrated Pentecost last week. Did you guys remember that, by the way? And we have Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection, the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it was in this context that the Holy Spirit poured out upon a group of 120 people. Fire from heaven was seen upon their heads. They began to speak in other languages, in other tongues. And off the back of that renewal, off the back of that outpouring, 3,000 people in one day were added to a whole new community called the church. The church was birthed in an outpouring, in a visitation of the Holy Spirit. The great, amazing evangelist, Reinhard Bonnke, who moved in incredible signs and wonders, used to say this, if you want biblical results, you've got to do it the biblical way. 
In other words, if you want the kind of revival that we see in the book of Acts, which, by the way, is a former reality, in other words, the latter-day reality of God's people, the church, is going to look better than the book of Acts. That if we want to see the same kind of outpouring, we've got to do it the same way. And it all started with a hunger for the Holy Spirit. I, I'm so hungry for him. And like Haggai the prophet, I believe that we're about to step into a season where we're seeing even greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that you'll notice as you study revival history is that the gap between the outpourings of God historically have got closer and closer and closer and closer. It sounds a little bit like a woman who's about to give birth that her contractions come closer and closer as she's getting ready to give birth to a baby. And I believe that we are in that same sense. The Bible talks about Christ being formed and the word that Paul uses there is the word travail, speaking of a woman in labor, that there is a sense in which God is coming and pouring out his spirit closer and closer and closer until we see all that he has for us in the promises he has designed for us. Your latter will be greater than your former. The outpouring of the past will be greater than the four minutes into this context, and I want to talk to you about a massive outpouring that happened. In fact, I would consider this the last greatest revival that we've seen on the earth, which happened in 1906 with the Azusa Street outpouring. You can put that slide up. Um, the Azusa Street outpouring. And I want to talk a little bit about Azusa. How many of you have ever heard about Azusa Street? Azusa Street is a, is a time in history that shifted things globally. Um, and it was a moment where the Holy Spirit was poured out in a little horse stall in Los Angeles on a street called Azusa. It began in a little home called Bunny Bray Home, and it was led by a black man with one eye. It began really a few years earlier, as all good things do, in the United Kingdom. Um, <laughs> just joking. I shouldn't say that in Boston, right? The home of the revolution. Um, but it began with an outpouring that happened at the Welsh Revival. Uh, we still sing songs from those days. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness. I mean, it just... the. the the overflow, if you've ever heard the song, Here is Love, you, if you don't cry, you probably need to get saved again. <laughs> but at Welsh Revival, some old women, some old ducks were praying. Two old ladies for a young man that will be raised up to host the move of God. And they met Evan Roberts, the incredible Welsh revivalist, and God began to move so that people traveled to Wales and encounter God. If you go to Wales today, you will see the impact of the revival, street names, everything. It was so powerful during the Welsh revival. I love the story, and it is legitimate. It has been documented. That the mine workers, the coal mine workers, were so used to cussing and swearing that their animals responded to their cuss words and their swearing rather than normal English words, and when revival swept in, the animals didn't quite know how to work anymore, 
because they were no longer swearing at these animals. And because of that, they, there was this amazing moment where some Americans began to hear about it and the impact as they came back to America, particularly in Los Angeles and other places, was that the presence and the power of God began to break out. And before we knew it, there was this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people, like in the book of Acts, began to speak in tongues. I, I want to just stop here for a moment and I want to say something theologically as a community. We are a tongue-speaking community. We believe in the speaking of tongues. The word glossolalia and the implications of that is a biblical word. And throughout church history, from the early church to today, there are not only records, but there are whole communities throughout the thread of history who have spoken in tongues because it is a biblical expectation that after you have got saved, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, like in Acts chapter 2, fill you with power and one of, not the only, one of the results is that you will speak with other languages. I myself have brought public words as I've spoken out in tongues, and people who uh, understood Latin began to understand what I was saying out loud. I, I believe that the biblical exposition and expression of the tongues of man, i.e. languages, that we speak in tongues and the tongues of angels are to be expected in the context of any church community. If you want a theological discourse, I can help you, but I would point to a number of great theologians who all speak in tongues. Dr. Craig Keener, one of the foremost New Testament theologians who's based in Asbury. Um, um, the professor, uh, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican. Uh, just by the way, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church is also a tongue speaker, recorded in the Guardian paper that he speaks in tongues. It is an expectation for Christians to be filled with the Spirit and speaking tongues. Just want to lay that foundation. And so tongues began to happen, and there was this man called Charles Parham. And I want to just be very clear, I don't want to offend anyone, but uh, Charles Parham was this young guy who got kicked out of his denomination, and he began to see a bit of an outpouring of the Spirit, started a Bible school, and taught the second baptism, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the problem with Charles Parham is that he also had racist theological undertones. In fact, it wasn't so undertone, it was explicit. And as a result, William Seymour, who had heard about him, this black man who grew up uh, as, a, as the son of, 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 um, of uh, parents who, were, who owned as slaves, um, who, I don't know what happened to his eye, I think he was born blind in one eye, began to hear about this tongue-speaking moment, and he went to Charles Parham and said, can I, can I please hear and be part of your Bible school? And he said, that's fine, as long as you sit outside, we'll leave the door ajar because we can't have you mix with the white folk. This is 1900s, early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, Jim Crow was still well in effect. The systems of, um, of racism were, were, were overwhelming. In fact, Charles Parham used uh, the N-word quite regularly, particularly when the Holy Spirit was being poured out at Azusa Street, to disparage, saying, how is it that rich white folk are being led by a black man? And although he taught this theology of baptism of the Holy Spirit, there were emphases in his own theological worldview that were unbiblical and not consistent with the heart of God. Yet God used him. Yeah. 
put that in your woke pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and I don't mean to be offensive to people who would consider themselves woke. I want to fight for justice and his rights. But I found that God often uses people that we are offended with to bring about a radical change. I mean, I, if I saw Charles Parham, I don't think I would want to know him. And I want to be offended, and I want to stand up against it. You, you get what I'm saying? I know it's been cheeky about being woke, but the reality is we live in a society that wants to be so politically correct that you can miss what God is doing even when he uses people who are not your flavor. And William Seymour came to Azusa Street, began it, well, Bunny Bray, as it were, back then, and began to preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they were at Bunny Bray, this house, but the power of God began to move so powerfully that hundreds of people started lining up and there became a disturbance to the neighborhood. And so they moved the revival, the outpouring, to Azusa Street, and they took on this old building that was uh, used to store horses. So you can just think about the implication of that. It didn't smell good. It wasn't very clean. And here's this black man with one eye having an outpouring with the Holy Spirit in 1906 when ain't nobody going to go and listen to a black man preach. White people, black people, Hispanics, you name it, everyone came from all over the world. It was said that at some stage they would have to line up outside and they'd have crowds from 500 to 1,500. You need to understand this is the day before you could go viral on Instagram. I love everyone advertising their revival meetings on Instagram. Uh, what God was doing was so sovereign in 1906 that people would come from all over to encounter God. This guy was absolutely crazy. It was said of, uh, of William Seymour that he would take a fruit box, put it on his head, and he would sit in the front looking at no one and just pray silently in the Holy Spirit. And until the glory of God began to manifest in what um, the, the storytellers or the historians tell us was called the Shekinah glory of God, which is where God would manifest in such a tangible way that there'd either be a cloud or there would be fire. Uh, there, there were many, many stories of how the fire of God would come upon the Azusa Street building and people would start phoning the fire station saying, you've got to come, there's a fire happening. And the fire would come from heaven down onto that building. And when that would happen, he would then get up and take his uh, fruit box off. And the presence of God would move. People would get healed. People would get saved. And we tell you some of the stories that were documented in that season. You'll see on here that it made front page news of many newspapers. It began to spread all across the world and is the single most influential movement of God to date. The result of this one move that lasted for three years is that we now have 644 million Pentecostals and Charismatics on the earth. That's about 8% of the population. That all, as a result, I am a result of what God did. There was a man called John G. Lake who served at the Azusa Street Revival and he felt God speak to him because when it ended, what they did was go to missions. The amount of missionaries that had been sent post the Azusa Street up until that point had not been seen in history. And John G. Lake 
heard God and he came to South Africa, moved in incredible signs and wonders during a time when there were plagues. And the result is that Pentecostal Christianity was birthed in a nation and I am fruit of what God did in 1906. I'm going to read some stories. Are you okay with this? I want to stir you up for revival. Some of them might be a bit long, but I, I want to read it. This is a book called, um, They Told Me Their Stories, and uh, Tom Welshell is a young man who would go to uh, a, a particular, I think it was like a commune, where people who had been in the revival moved to, um, and we'll talk a little bit about the disappointment in a moment. But I love this, and I want to just read a few stories, if that's okay, um, Listen to this. So this is from Mr. and Mrs. Langford, who had been impacted by the Welsh revival and had been praying, asking God for revival. And he's picking up, saying even before the first prayer was offered, God was preparing many people to participate in this magnificent outpouring of his spirit. Listen to this. One such brother, one such saint was Brother Langford, who had a hunger to know all that he could about yielding himself to the Lord. And he talks about how God moved him into different places, and they were involved in over 100 miracles. Uh, Tommy would go to these people and ask them for their stories. And I just want to, tell, I want to pick up, here we go. The Langfords were all about being used by God to bring about healings and miracles. And when we talked, the entire evening was one story after another about the miraculous works of God at Azusa. I would often ask them, asked the Langfords to tell me their most interesting miracles. And Brother Langford would begin, and Mrs. Langford would add her memories to those of her husband. Mr. Langford says this, I witnessed a man's fingers actually grow back. This statement would grasp my attention as I begged for more details. Langford told me about a man who had gotten two fingers caught several weeks earlier in some type of machine, and before he knew it, the machine had ripped off the two fingers. The man had to wear, sorry, the man had heard that astonishing miracles happened at the Azusa warehouse, so he came with expectation of getting healed. Brother Langford shocked the man by asking, can we see what God will do? The man, somewhat puzzled, replied, what do you mean? And he said, let's ask God to grow them out. With the man's approval, Langford grabbed the man's hand and instructed him to put it up in the air, holding the man's hand up high, and with Sister Langford holding his arms, Langford began to pray. As soon as the man's fingers began to grow out, Sister Langford passed out from the sight of such a miracle. I probably would do the same thing. As Brother Langford held firmly to the man's hand, they watched the miracle happen before their very eyes. Langford started taking the man around, shouting that his fingers had just grown out. You could hear Langford cry, these weren't here before. Look, God grew these fingers out. Guys, I want to see this movie. <laughs> before the miracle was over, even the man's fingernails grew out as the man was made whole. Mrs. Langford smiled as her husband told about the greatest miracles he had been part of. And as soon as she finished, he said, she said, let me tell you my most memorable miracle. Sister Langford didn't wait for any approval and she began to tell her story. At the time of this miracle, the Langfords were engaged and she said somewhat forcefully, honey, come here. 
And he wasn't used to her talking like that because she was very sweet and very soft-spoken. She said, look here at the sister of ours that God is going to heal. The lady had a very bad hunchback. Her back didn't just curve, it was twisted. She was an older woman, probably around 50 to 55 years old. And she told Sister Langford that the problems had started when she was about 30 and it had gotten worse and worse and worse. The doctor wanted to put her into a nursing home, but her husband felt she should come because she might just get healed. It goes on. Brother Langford came over and laid his hands upon the hunchback and started praying. You could hear the popping of the bones, and within minutes, right before their eyes, she was healed. Man alive, I, I want to carry on reading. This is, this is a crazy one, um, and it actually means a lot to me. Um, I want to get there quickly. Um, His brother Langford was also blessed with the great gift of helping those who had cleft palates or lips to receive healing. I was born with a cleft palate, so this is a really great miracle. Some of those who came for healing never had operations or medical treatment. There would be big gaps in their mouth, and he would pray for them, and the gaps would be filled. Sometimes some of their teeth would be gone, and the teeth would be restored. I said to brother Langford, teeth and all, he said, yep. Teeth and all. After a three-year period that he was there, God used him in healing around 100 people, many of them with cleft palate. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, other than I've seen God move in some incredible ways. I've seen healing. I personally have seen one resurrection from the dead, and I know that God can do this, and he wants to do it again. The glory of the former house is going to be nothing compared to that of the latter house. Listen to this one. I'm just going to mess with your mind. Next, Sister Langford told of the man with no arm. <laughs> I, I, are you guys hearing this? Like, I'm like, no arm, right? Um, so Seymour spoke with the man who had lost his arm 10 years earlier through a work-related accident. The arm had been totally severed at the shoulder. Brother Seymour asked the crowd, would you like to see God have a wonderful time here tonight? Some of you may remember the man's leg that grew out about a year ago. <laughs> Seymour then asked the one-armed man, can you work with this one arm? He said, I'm just giving minimal pain. Jobs are barely making up money to even eat. Seymour said, shook his head and responded, that's not good. Are you married? Yes. Got kids? Yes. This man needs to be able to make a living. This man needs to work and he needs to be able to pay his tithe. Will you tithe if I pray for you and God gives you your arm back? Seymour said teasingly. Yes, Seymour burst out laughing, saying, I'm just having fun. Then he slapped his hand on the shoulder itself and commanded the arm to grow out. Almost instantly, it started moving. Um, sorry, almost instantly, it grew out. The healed man stood in total shock and then started moving his arm, feeling uh, of moving his arm and the feeling of it with his other hand, awed by the miracle. The next week, the man came back bringing 200 people with him. <laughs> Listen to this. Just a few more, and then I'm going to help bring it together. 
When Seymour came down to the meeting, he would sit down and put a box on his head. At first, it startled Sister Connie. This is one of the other ladies that were first eyewitnesses. Sometimes he would sit with the box over his head for 10 minutes, and sometimes it would be over an hour or more. Although the practice seemed ridiculous, Sister Connie realized that he was obeying God no matter how silly or ridiculous it appeared. God, give us an ability to not fear man. Like a parent, act of humble obedience led to a mighty power when he removed the box. This box and act of humility were critical to the power of God displayed through Brother Seymour. Listen to this. When Brother Smith asked Sister Connie what stopped, when, uh, sorry, what caused the miracles in Azusa to stop, she replied, it stopped when Brother Seymour stopped putting the box over his head. When he quit coming down and putting the box on his head, it started dying. Listen to this. She recalled that if you touched Seymour, a kind of electricity would shock you. The current was so strong that the first time she touched him during a meeting, she almost passed out. And then she begins to talk about the Shekinah glory. When I asked her about her experience of the presence of God's Spirit, Sister Connie's face would light up. She described it as being part of heaven. To her, it was like breathing pure oxygen. And to her wonderment, it was always present. When I asked her to describe the Shekinah glory, fire that was reported by many, she told her story. She recalled the fire department coming because of a call that the building was on fire, and when they arrived, they didn't smell any smoke or see any evidence of a fire. She didn't run out with the firemen. She just remembered Seymour, Bosworth, Lake, Smith, and Science. These are all people who were used very powerfully by God post uh, the revival at Azusa. But Sister Connie did go at one time to see the flames for herself. Remember, the fire department had been called on several different occasions as passerbys would report seeing flames leaping up from the roof of the building. Finally, Sister Connie asked John Lake why the fire department kept coming and looking for the fire. And he explained that the fire was coming down from heaven into the building and fire was going up from the building and the meeting and, and meeting the fire that was coming down. Fascinated, Sister Connie went out, walked about a half a block, and saw the awesome sight for herself. To her, this divine connection of fire coming down from heaven and going up to heaven was just further evidence of God's mighty presence in that place. God, would you do it again in our day? It's incredible because the result of these outpourings, the result of what God did, much like the great awakening that happened in New England, was thousands of people got saved. But not only that, thousands of people were sent on mission. In fact, over 100,000 people were sent on mission as a result of what God was doing in this context, in a time when the cost to mission was not a first-class flight to a really hard place. The latter... The the glory of the latter house will be better than that of the former. It tells me something that when you study the history of revivals, at each juncture of another outpouring, it gets better, it gets more dramatic, it, there's a greater overflow. And I want to tell you, I believe that our expectation should be that God will do it again in our generation. I believe we're tasting something of that already in what happened in Asbury and what happened in 1994 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Toronto, and what happened with the outpouring in, um, 
in Pensacola, Florida, and what happened in the outpouring in Lakeland, Florida. I think we might need to move to Florida, but apparently that's where God moves. These stories have been recorded both in mainstream newspapers and the dramatic evidence of it, as well as by many people, this is all first-hand, first eyewitness accounts of the Azusa Street. Theologians actually read a great um, article um, produced by one of the theologians over at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary saying that this was the most significant move of God that shifted the church and its tra- trajectory and any other move of God. Right now, the fastest growing church in the world is happening through the Pentecostal charismatic expression. Go figure. We need the Holy Spirit to grow our churches. Guys, we're talking a little bit about revival. There is something about a hunger that has to be stirred in our hearts to expect him to move. The thing that postured these guys when you study is the cry that I must have more of God. I wonder if we would be that community. I wonder if we'd be that community who would be willing to put a fruit box on our head, no matter what it looks like. People often are offended by my exuberant worship and my ability not to quite keep and get to the right notes in worship. I sing loud. I am slightly unhinged when I sing. I'm the only black man without rhythm. I actually am a good dancer for the record, it must be said. <laughs> but I don't give a continental poop about what you think because I've seen the one that I love. I don't know if I was allowed to say that. But there's something about a hunger because, see, I've tasted revival. I've tasted something of God. And the point of the next few weeks that we talk about this is not to get you hyped up, it's to get you hungry. What's incredible is this last move of God that happened in 1906 that, by the way, impacted election results, impacted people's work ethic, impacted the socioeconomic dynamic over the three years in the greater LA area. I mean, the list could go on in terms of the impact. um, Ended very quickly. Only three years. I don't believe that God's designed revival to end. I believe people kill revival because we all have our own agendas. And there are a number of reasons when you study this that it ended. One, it ended because of theological disunity. Somewhere along the line, we thought that the only way we could ever have unity is by agreement on theological principles rather than by agreement around the truth who is a person called Jesus. And we see that because Seymour believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what happened was theologically people got really upset with that because they were trying to figure it out and some people didn't agree with that and papers were written and people began to speak out about it. People got jealous about the move of God and they shut it down because of theological disunity. The Bible seems to indicate to us that we will come to the full unity of the faith 
in the fullness of the stature of God, and that unity has to do with who you're connected to as the person of Jesus, not simply about your five doctrinal viewpoints. The second thing that happened that ended this move of God was racism. I, I, I feel like Azusa Street speaks right into our current context. The result of a black man leading a global movement of God's spirit being poured out was a little bit too much for people to handle. And the result is that at the end of that, a, two movements were birthed. One, the AG, the Assemblies of God, and the other, the Church of God in Christ. One was white and one was black, and neither of those two have ever come back together again. All because the preconceived ideas about who God could use and what color they should be was elevated above what God was actually doing. Brothers and sisters, I feel like this is a prophetic statement to the the very fabric of American society. You see, Seymour used to say this, that the greatest sign of the Holy Spirit at work is not speaking in tongues, but that black people, white people, people from every ethnic color, class, brown people were all worshiping God together. He said, that's the goal. I want to say to you, the goal is still true today. Like, I do not want monochrome church. I can't have it because I'm married to a different color anyway. (laughs) The sign of our unity that I believe God wants to restore for the sake of America and the nations is every tribe, every tongue, every language worshiping in unity, not because we're checking a political box, because heaven looks like that. The third thing that ended this move of God was the idea that God would dare use a woman. I feel like we're talking to the commentary of society today. The issues of whether God can use a woman or a man in church, sweet Jesus, can we move on already? All of history from the early church fathers, doctors, and mothers tell us that God has traditionally and always wanted to use women as part of the gospel proclamation that brings about radical change. And if you don't agree with that, and if you're offended by that, build a bridge and get over it already because there are hundreds and thousands of people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus. Right now, the biggest part of the mission force that is impacting the developing world are not nice white men or black men who have it all together. They are women. Statistically, and I pray God changes this, statistically, women will pay the price of mission far ahead and far along before men do. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Come on already. Like, I I remember sitting in England talking to people in their ivory towers about whether the Bible says women can lead a church or not, and Mozambique was being 
evangelized by an apostolic and apostle, a woman called Heidi Baker, that changed the very growth curve of the radical fundamentalist Muslim mission and turned it around for a whole nation while we were all trying to figure out what does the Greek say. And by the way, the Greek says women can do whatever. There's a great book written by a phenomenal author called Dr. Katia Adams called Equal. I would buy it if I were you. And then lastly, the other reason it ended was because of an indifference to economic equity. You see, you had poor people and rich people. Charles Parham, who was so offended by the idea of a rich white woman falling out onto the par in the power of God, but falling on a poor black man because the power of God would come in so that they all fall on top of each other. How dare that happen? It is inappropriate, is what he said. Because the idea of wealth and poverty being in the same room together still offends many. But I want to tell you that the kingdom of God is expressed through justice and mercy. The kingdom of God is good news for the poor. You're not helping me tonight, so I'm going to get a little bit Pentecostal. <laughs> but we have got to shift our ideology and our understanding that God will use whomever he wants and that he seems to be predisposed to the poor. That when I look throughout history, God seems to like hanging out with the poor, the broken. And the church in the West has a responsibility to begin to engage in compassionate capitalism. That where we've been given the incredible opportunity to make money, that the Bible commands us to be liberal with all things. That we share our money. We share our equity. We create context for people who've grown up in systemic racism, who've grown up in context that keep you in poverty to say, how do I use my wealth? How do I use my money? How do I use my spare room? How do I use my extra car to get you out of your poverty and lift you up so that the gospel really is good news? I'm sorry, I'm passionate about it, but God somehow took a little African kid who grew up in the Cape Flats and has used him to change the world because people understood this principle that we have got to be liberal with all that we have. If you are building for your house and your house only, you are living contrary to the kingdom. I want to tell you the American dream is a lie. It's not about what you can get. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy. You can see I'm claiming 45. I'm making dad jokes. <laughs> it is about the people of God in equity, influence, and substance being liberal with everything that we have. Before you all say amen, what are you going to do about that? Who are you going to give to? How are you going to engage with the poor and the broken? Because the gospel is going to use to the poor. Those four things are the things that is facing our generation right now. 
theological disunity because everybody has a keyboard, an Instagram account, and a TikTok account, and I want to give you my opinion about what I think the Bible says. And if you don't like it, it's spiritual abuse. And if you don't like it, you don't understand me. If you don't like it, I want to deconstruct. That is contrary, because the issue of theology is not the study of what you believe, it is the study of who you're gazing upon. The issue of racism, gender, and economic inequity are still the issues that are facing our generation. And I wonder, I just wonder, if God has not done the kind of glory that we see in this Azusa Street, because we, because he is refusing to change the subject. I, I just wonder if we want to see the kind of outpouring of the Holy Spirit like this, if we actually have to address the issues before we will begin to see the same kind of glory that grows limbs out, the same kind of glory that causes blind eyes to see, the same kind of glory that causes firemen to show up to a meeting because there is fire in the house, but they can't find it. Haggai prophesies, and he says, the latter glory will be greater than the former. Oh, I long for an Azusa Street moment, but I want to tell you what God's about to do will pale in significance, that this will just be the taste tester, the appetizer, because the entree is going to be a whole lot better. I want to say as a community, we have got to posture ourselves in hunger, but we've got to be willing to pay the price. Because the kind of gospel that we want to preach is not a gospel that says come and get saved. It's a gospel that says come and die so that you can truly live. It's a gospel that says we will give everything for the sake of our King, Jesus, who is God. It's a gospel that says we want to pay the price for the sake of a city, for the sake of Boston, for the sake of Massachusetts, that we would see an outpouring of God that will challenge the intellectual idolatry that communicates great ideas, grandiose ideas, but does nothing to actually change the very fabric of society and bring about hope to the poor, the broken, and the hurting. Dear brothers and sisters, I'm hungry for revival. And I don't want to hype you up right now I'm not going to get you up on your chairs and wave your handkerchiefs in the air. I'm not going to make you do any of that. I simply want to ask you, are you hungry for this kind of revival? Because I didn't move to Boston from beautiful Cape Town <laughs> to have a nice church where everything's comfortable and it's so easy and you get your coffee just at the right temperature but your life is never transformed or changed. I came for a city. I came for a nation. I came for a people like you and me who get to shift things for generations that follow. One man, blind in one eye, the wrong color with not enough education, 
is still impacting more than 644 million people right now because of his hunger for God. Let me stand. Haggai prophesies to us and he says, don't be so preoccupied with building your own house that you forget the house of God. And even though it's really difficult right now and it looks like that as you're building this temple, it looks like it's not even working. But he says, just remember this, that the former is nothing compared to the latter and that the latter glory of this house will be greater because the Spirit is in our midst. And he says to us at the end of chapter 2 that surely you will be a signet ring, a diadem in the hand of God. You will be a display of grace to the nations. I believe Haggai prophesied that to the table today. He prophesied that to the church in Boston today, to the church in America today, to the church in the West. Do not grow weary in doing good. Because revival is coming. Yet in a little while, once again, I will shake the heavens and I will shake the earth. Won't you lift up your hands toward heaven for a moment? Without hype or without soft playing music in the background, many of you right now are going to come under the sense of urgency for revival. Many of you are going to begin to pray saying, God, I must be a part of this. Some of you will even get healed today. We spoke last week, um, Brandon spoke last week about giving, throwing some things away. Some of you are going to need to pour out some books or whatever. We've got a black brim on the side here. And I said last week, if you need to come and throw things away that you know has got a hold on you, you can do that in a moment. But for right now, won't you ask him, If you're not hungry, ask him to make you hungry. Some of you right now, the presence of God is going to come upon you in a way that might even seem overwhelming because suddenly you realize that God wants to use you as a spark and initiator of revival. Some of you moved to Boston thinking that revival would happen in six months' time, but there's been a delay. But you know God's calling you for more. Allow him to come right now. Allow him to meet with you right now. The cry of Azusa Street was simply, I must have more of him. Brothers and sisters, I have seen many miracles in my life. Impossibilities that God has changed, healings God has done, resurrection from the dead, deaf ears popped open, eardrums that have been recreated, miracle after miracle. And whilst I love the miracles, and I love when God does that, I must have more of Jesus. And so, Father, I cannot hype your people up into a desire for revival. I cannot make people want more than what they want. But I ask you, 
that by the power of your spirit, even right now, that you will begin to fall upon people with a holy desire that says, I will not settle, I will not be quiet, I will not hold back until I begin to see the nations change until I begin to see your power break out in my university, in my work, in my church, in my family. That I will not stop until I see revival again. And that, like the psalmist, we will cry out, Revive us again, O God. Restore the fame of your name in this land. even if it looks foolish, even if we have to put a fruit box on our head, we must have more of you, God. We want to see an outpouring, a revival that would shake tradition and religion, that would deal a death blow to racism, that will deal a death blow to sexism and gender inequality. God, would you do it in our day and in our time? Increase your presence right now. I pray for the spirit of intercession like that that Paul describes in Romans that he travails in prayer until Christ is formed in the church. Would you cause us to be a travailing church who will not relent, who will not stop until we see the fullness of Christ? God, would you release Shekinah glory? And God, more than that, I pray that we would never keep it to ourselves. So Holy Spirit, fill your people. Fill your people right now. Release fresh baptisms of the Spirit right now. Right now, pour out your Holy Spirit upon people. Right now, let your power begin to break out in this room right now with great signs and wonders and miracles. Right now, more. More right now. More right now. We will not relent until we see more. Come, Holy Spirit. Some of you are weeping. Go ahead and allow that to be formed in you. Allow your tears to become the seeds of revival. Some of you might need to come and just confess sin to God. Do that right now. Don't let there be any block that would stop you from enjoying the overflow of the Spirit. God's presence is just coming upon people right now. More. Let your fire be in a fall, God. Let your glory be to rest upon people. More, God. 
This is the Sunday morning podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.